Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everyone had a great weekend and I want to say happy early birthday to Barbara. It's been three years since tonight's guest appeared on Nightlight and that's and in a show with uh, Arlen it's like mid-February of 2019 has been one of our best archiving shows. Uh, since then Arlen has managed to get out a uh, great CD, and our guest is Arlen Roth, and he, uh, you may have seen him touring with Simon Garfunkel, uh, maybe saw him recently at the Grand Ole Opry, uh, heard his music in Crossroads, watched his Hot Licks guitar series, um, <clears throat> saw any of his guitar lessons on Sam Ash's YouTube channel and Arlen's new CD is a collaboration with the legendary John Sebastian and their CD is entitled The Spoonful Songbook. You can learn more about Arlen by going to his website ArlenRoth.com. Hi Arlen, how are you? Hey Mark, great to be here. Uh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm fine. Good. I'm uh, excited to have you uh, <laughs> return. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to getting into uh, di- discussing the Spoonful Songbook, but yeah. Um, before we get into that, you, you know we're an eclectic show, you know, Barbara and I are a little uh, 
rookie at times, and <laughs> I, I wanted no, to hear about No, never. It. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's been three years too. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, we had that uh, Joanna Summer Scales on a Sunday. Merle Fankhauser was Tuesday, and you were uh, a Wednesday show. It was like uh, the first time we ever done like uh, three out of four shows were musical themed, and it, it was uh, a really exciting week. But yeah, that was Great. like yeah, mid February of 2019. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, before we jump into a spoonful songbook. I want, I want to hear about this haunted studio where you're doing some, some kind of top secret uh, project at the moment. What, what, well, the studio, no, what, no, no, no. The studio is not haunted. The haunting okay. that we experienced was right here in, in my house. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> the studio is just a nice place where it's only about four miles away. And I've, I've been doing, I'm with my uh, engineer, Alex Salzman, who has probably done nine albums with me already, including uh, Lexi's projects, my daughter Lexi, and uh, he is just fantastic. You know, so I'm doing this new all-acoustic album, and I cut another bluegrass tune today. Uh, I'm doing a lot more singing on this album. Uh, Singing, so far I've sung like four out of five songs that I've done. Um, but there'll mm-hmm. be, uh, I think it'll be like even half and half singing and instrumental. Uh, but I feel a lot more confident with the vocals now. And um, some things are what I've written and some things are, are other people's material. And uh, I'm very, very happy with it. I mean, sometimes I'll even discover the song that I want to do like two days before I go in and, and do the session. And like today, and we're just, Boom, we just did it. It was great. It was like three or four hours and we were out of there, you know. So, but he's a great engineer. The the haunting experience, <laughs> since you wanted, you asked about that, that was here in the house. <laughs> uh, it's a very serious thing. I mean, this was a house, this is a house, they say it was built in 1952, which is the year I was born. But um, <laughs> it seems even, it seems older than that, unless maybe I'm older than I even think. I don't know. But um, it was here, and there's a hallway that separates. It's a very small house. There's only three rooms besides the kitchen. The living room and the bedroom are sort of opposite each other, and there's a hallway that runs through there. Um, You know, just sort of like a, I don't know, four-foot-wide kind of breezeway. And um, I'm lying in bed. I wasn't sleeping at all. And uh, Diana was in here in the living room, and she was not sleeping at all either. But I'm in the room, and all of a sudden I hear all this talking going on. I mean, really loud talking. Uh, It was two people, two people, a a prominent voice and another voice that was, like, much quieter but answering the other voice. But I couldn't make out the words. I mean, it was really pretty loud. But I, I, and I'm thinking she's in here talking on the phone, you know, like many times she is, or that she was in here watching the television, you know, because I'm in the bedroom, uh-huh. which there's no phone, 
no phone in the bedroom nor any TV. So anyway, uh, I bring it up, and she says, she says, wait a minute, you, I was hearing that. She says, but it, I thought it was you. She says, I thought you were talking to somebody. I said, no. You know, we were hearing it out of the, the, the thing that was in between the two rooms we were in. And so um, it was incredible because it lasted a very long time. And it was like, um, it was just like a conversation from, from outer space or something. It was just bizarre the way it materialized. And, um, you know, when I, I kept, and like that night and even um, for the sub- subsequent days after that, my dog, Penny, who, you know, you've seen Penny, pictures her anyway. Uh-huh. She right. spent the whole time staring, looking up at the ceiling looking up at the wall and acting mm-hmm. scared turns into a little Frady cat sometimes, you know, and she, she's backing away and she's looking and I'm like, she's never done that. She's never stood in this spot right where the voices were coming from that spot and looked up and, and was full of anticipation. So I was, uh, you know, cause they say a lot of times animals on a, a plane that allows them to like, you know, uh, be aware of things like that, and they they observe it. They even see things, but she was really acting like it. And she last night she did the same thing. She came out of that room, but was backing away. She was backing away from it, and she never does that. But she was backing away like she was scared or a little bit, you know, uh, confused or whatever. But we haven't heard any more of those sounds. But but that was the one time, and it was just so prominent, and the fact that. Diana heard it in one room, and I heard it in the other room. You know, pretty amazing. Okay. Uh, yeah, the in-between space sounds like it's symbolic of something in-between two worlds type. Could be, uh, yeah. Yeah, there, it, it, and coming up, uh, well, uh, in – mid-April when we have a Washington Irving scholar on and he wrote uh, besides uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow, he he wrote a lot more uh, gothic uh, romance short stories and a couple of them touch on topics like that but yeah he was writing about things like that in the 1830s and 40s. So, you know, the, sure. this idea has been around for a long time. That's very well, interesting. But the oh. thing what happened, though, was uh, two days after it, I was kind of like examining the area where it came from. And, of course, there's like a front door there, you know. And I realized mm-hmm. that this house, this house has an old, old telephone wire, okay, that's not being used, that's defunct. And it's not even hooked up anymore to a pole, but it's hooked up to the house where that, you know, on that, at the front of that spot. And then it just runs off into the lawn. It's like this black telephone wire that just kind of like goes into the lawn. And then nobody has ever wanted to remove it for some reason. We've had people come and I say, well, what about this wire? You know, this wire that's here. So it's it's interesting. Maybe that wire acted as some kind of conduit for something, you know, in terms of like maybe uh, some old 
memories that went through that wire or old. Um, wow. You never know. But the fact is, right at that point, that's where there's this this old defunct telephone wire comes right to that spot. Sounds like that Twilight Zone episode, uh, Night Call. Oh, I don't know about that one. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah. There's a storm knocked a telephone uh, wire down in a graveyard, and uh, yeah, the old boyfriend was calling this oh. lady in in bed. So uh-huh. it's. <laughs> you know, I mean, it sounded like uh, it sounded like a phone call. We. We thought it sounded like a phone call because there was the radio show. The, the, mm-hmm. Thought it was the, the phone a phone call because there was a uh, a quieter voice sort of answering the louder voice. You know, like there was a prominent voice, and then there was this other voice, like yeah, uh-huh, whatever it was saying, as if you know there was somebody else at the other end of the line. So it was like there was a conversation going on between two people. But so, it, 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 and the, the the voices weren't very uh, clear, or were they speaking a foreign language? It wasn't a. You couldn't tell. I mean, it had it had a pattern, as if it were English or whatever. You know, something that we'd be familiar with. Mm-hmm. But no matter how mm-hmm. hard you listened, because I actually got out of bed and started listening, you know, by the wall and by the door, you couldn't make out the words. You just couldn't make it out. They were like these sort of muffled sounds, you know. Uh, it's kind of like the intelligible part of the word was about as if like the, the high end of it was like removed or something. You just couldn't mm-hmm. hear. You could not make any distinction, but you knew that there were two people, two different tonalities having this conversation, you know. It was very weird. It was really weird, and it – there was it definitely had a little bit of an otherworldly quality to it, you know. It's one thing like that if you just oh, there's a conversation again. This time it was a conversation, but but it just seemed to be coming from somewhere else, you know. It was just really odd. But I just want my theory about that that telephone wire. I just wonder if that wire has anything to do with it. It could, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we uh, if we have a guest that covers something like that, uh, we'll give you their opinion, <laughs> pass pass it on. Uh, yeah, I remember the last time you asked story. me about my UFO, my UFO sighting too, you know. Let's go on to the spoonful. Let's go on to the spoonful. That's <laughs> okay. enough of that. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I have all kinds <laughs> of questions for you, but it, yeah. We'll, oh, um, sure. Okay, okay so um, yeah, you did this new uh, terrific CD with John Sebastian from The Love and Spoonful, one of the biggest <clears throat> bands in the 60s. Absolutely, sure. Yeah, what was it about what John and the band were doing in the 60s that really resonated with you? You know, when you were a, oh, a yeah. teenager. Yeah, well, I was about, let's see, I was 13 when they first came out. And, uh, you know, they had, uh, that was the time when we were involved with Beatlemania, with the Stones, mm-hmm. with, you know, the English invasion. But 
any group that was really, really good could right away grab the spotlight, you know. Uh, so the, all of a sudden, here comes the Love and Spoonful with these incredible songs. You know, do you believe, believe in magic? You didn't have to be so nice. Daydream, uh, you know, did you ever have to make up your mind, which is my favorite one. But it, he just, they, they had such a good time, positive feel, and uh, I didn't care whether they were American or English or anything. I didn't differentiate mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, Zal, the guitar player, Zal Yanofsky, had so much personality and was so funny, and he played so great because they were more country than a lot of the other groups. And because he came out of Toronto, you know, Canada. So mm-hmm. the folks in Canada just love country music and they're very rooted in country music. So it just a spoonful were just like a breath of fresh air. They were positive. They were vibrant. They were funny. Uh, they had all kinds of great personality. And, uh, you know, they, they, they appeared on like Ed Sullivan and all those other shows on TV. And most of the time they were, they were playing live, you know, or if they were not playing live, they'd be singing, singing live to tracks or whatever it might've been, you know, cause back in those days, you'd have almost any combination of anything, but, um, they were just great, and they had one hit after another. You know, I mean, like major hits, and um, uh-huh. their their songs had. Um, you know, of course, that was also the era of not only did you buy singles, you know, forty fives, but you bought albums. You know, and uh, they had some great album cuts. Like we, when I told John that I wanted to do that album cut called uh, Four Eyes on this album. He was like, oh, yeah, I got, we got to do that, you know, because as a kid, that song just stuck with me. It was sort of like for the Spoonful, it was a rather hard-hitting song that had kind of a dark, a little bit more of a darker message, you know, and uh, uh-huh. I just loved I just loved what they did. And I loved his voice, and I loved um, the sound, just the sound of the record, you know what I mean? And there were a lot of common threads through their songs. Because he had, he likes to write with that sort of ragtimey, uh, kind of like 1920s, 1930s kind of changes. You know, it's almost like, because you know how he loves jug band music and all that stuff. It's that kind of right. stuff. It's ragtime. But then all of a sudden, he could come out with something like Summer in the City. You know? And Summer in the City was their biggest hit of all. But it was right there with being a completely different kind of song, you know? It didn't sound anything like that. It was the only one that was in a minor key, you know? And it was it, it was darker. It just had a darker quality to it, and it was just a monster hit, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I just, I loved everything they did, you know? But I was a big fan of only their original lineup. Like, once Zal Yanofsky left, I didn't even know there was a Love and Spoonful after that, you know? You know, it's like like the birds without, you know, without the original birds, too, you know, something like that. But that was a great period for music. Yeah, and you just mentioned, uh, you know, John, John's interest in, uh, you know, jug bands and, you know, they do have right. the <clears throat> jug band music song. Where, I can see where you and John would, uh be able to exchange a lot of ideas about 
you know, the Americana type music roots sure. music. But yeah. um, you know, where did did the auto harp come in with John's music? Uh, you know, it's unusual to see that in a rock band. Well, you never saw it in a rock band, but if you saw the Carter family, or if you saw, you know, any uh, old-timey country acts back in those days, there were always auto harps, you know, or zithers, you know. Uh, but auto harps were were all over the place. And in fact, did you ever see that clip of John with Mama Cass, with Cass Elliot doing uh, Darling Companion? And she's playing the auto harp, you know. So it was very much a, you know, Maybelle Carter, you know, the Carter family, that kind of thing. It comes from old-time country music, and, um, you know, that's what uh, where John picked it up. It, it was like a big thing in folk groups back then, you know, because he came up in that period in the 50s and early 60s when it was, you know, uh, a lot of those folk acts and the, and the old, old country acts. So I think that's where it came from. You know. Okay, it's <clears throat> yes, you know, just very unique with sure. him. And he plays so, it beautifully. You know, he really plays it. I mean, he, you know, um, Randy Van Warmer, his song "You Left Me Just When I Needed You Most." Right. Okay. You know that song? Well, that mm-hmm. auto harp solo in there—that's him. That's John. And then I did not when know Dolly, that. yeah, and then because Randy, they were based up in Woodstock. And then when uh, Dolly Parton remade that song, because it's just a beautiful song, when Dolly Parton redid it, it, he also, he redid his auto harp solo on it too. So, um, so John's playing auto harp on, on, you know, those two versions that are separated by like about 40 years, you know? Um, And, but he, He's just, you know, and just such a great harmonica player. He's like a brilliant harmonica player and a great guitar picker. So, like, when he and I are together, it's just like, you know, it's showing off instruments to each other and every every day trying to, you know, you know, just back and forth kind of playing and sharing stories and sharing licks. It's like, you know, it's almost like we come from the same background in a way. And <clears throat> the fact that I grew up, so adoring his music I think he really takes that to heart I think because he has a a lot of respect for me and he pictures me as like a young kid just tuning in the radio and and loving loving the loving spoonful you know and it was I just remember that time so clearly you know Uh, that's when I was really developing as a guitar player and as a musician and just you know falling in love with those songs you know and and with the Yanovsky's playing, and also uh, John's playing. So it's just a so, natural thing so, that so, all these years later we're together doing it, you know. Yeah, and, uh, and that natural feel comes across on the music. Really? Yeah, thank you. I, yeah, I think it does. I really think <clears throat> it does. <clears throat> it um, It's a shame that the whole COVID thing cut into our ability to do a lot of the recording together, right. you know, but a lot of the basic tracks, because you got to realize the album was done uh, over a period of time. I think it started in 2016, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, you know, I'd go up to Woodstock like maybe once a week 
go to his house, and we'd work on some stuff. Then we'd go into the studio, which was only two or three miles from his house, and and we would work on it. But um, it wasn't a fast project. You know, it was done very deliberately, and we'd we'd, uh, kind of, you know, uh, toss around a few different ideas. We had even recorded a few songs that never made it to the album. Like John didn't feel that Summer in the City, that it was such a monster hit with a monster sound that we just weren't able to recapture to him. I wish he kept it on the album because it had my biggest guitar solo. But but uh, the song, it was like a mountainous guitar solo. But, you know, and there's even that clip of he and I at uh, <clears throat> Bethel Woods, you know, on, on uh, YouTube, you can see us doing Summer in the City, just the two of us, you uh-huh. know. Uh, uh-huh. But it just couldn't, it, it just didn't, uh, we couldn't match up to the energy, I guess is the way he put it, uh, on the original record, you know. He just figured, let's just leave that one alone and not try to, uh, to, to you know, emulate that. So I was a little bit sad about that, but, you know, it, they're his songs, so I, I wasn't going to, like, put my foot down and say, no, we're going to do it anyway, you know. That wouldn't have worked. <laughs> so. So, did, did you see John performing at Woodstock? He uh, he, he wasn't even a scheduled performer. Is like I know. Uh, he got on the – I was there. I, I, I was there because I lived only uh, a mile from the site. But uh, we, uh, I'd missed that one. You know, he didn't, when I was there, when he was on, I wasn't there. I saw, you know, I was backstage when it was Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and I saw Santana there, and I saw a whole bunch of different people at different times, you know. But it was uh, Johnny Winter, you know, Johnny Winter and I always talk, we were talking about that. But um, I, I kept going back and forth because I lived there. And um, so I must have walked back and forth about four times to the festival over that period of time, you know. So, but when I, yeah, I know John was there and he had to, he just had to like do a set because they did, needed somebody to, to do something, you know. And he, uh, he did a great job. He did a great job. And, and you can still see uh, Darlin be home soon on YouTube. And oh yeah, yeah. You know, he he uh, redid that for th- this CD. Uh, it it, it yeah. was also on a, a Love and Spoonful album as well. Yeah, it's a great a great song. Mm-hmm. Great song. <clears throat> and he told me yeah. the story about how that when that song was done, uh, they somehow accidentally erased the whole thing. So they had to start completely from scratch all over again to do it. So he says every time he listens to it, he thinks of that. He hears the fact that he had to do it all over again, you know, kind of thing. But that's what would happen back in those days. Tape tape would get somehow erased or lost or whatever, you know. And But that was a great song and um, one of his best, you know. It- and you have you, you know your daughter Lexi. Uh, yeah, being, she did a great uh, one job. Of the, oh, uh, 
Yes, I didn't want to have to do it. Um, yeah. It, it, she she appears regularly on your uh, CDs. It, is it uh, pretty easy working with family? Oh, of course. Especially when it's family like that, where we're so so close, you know. Um, the music is really what uh, what binds us together, you know. Because um, <clears throat> even as a little tiny girl, and her late sister Jillian, it was all about music, you know. Just the three of us would always just sing harmony and. Of course, I was teaching Jilly the guitar, and then I started teaching Lexi the guitar. Uh, but they learn just by by watching, just by listening and watching, which is how I I learned. You know, I never took lessons, so it's just a very natural sort of like a musical family. And Lexi has an incredible ear, and she also has an amazing ability with her her writing. You know, even when she was about six years old, she would write this incredible these stories and poems and all these incredibly esoteric, amazing, amazing things that she'd write when she was just a little tiny girl. And um, just, just, you know, she has that kind of uh, inspiration, that kind of mind. And so she um, carried through, you know, when she did her first album, she has an album called One Long Blink, which uh, she did when she was <clears throat> from the age of 15 to about 17. And I thought she was just going to sing a song on my album at the time, like she was going to do that song, Angry River, uh, which, you know, I, I wrote when I was with Steel, my band, back when I was 16. Um, and uh, she kept every day, she'd go up into her room and I'd hear more and more music coming out. And I said, you know, Lex, I think you're, you're working on a whole album. You've got a whole album's worth of material. Here. And next thing you know, she had enough songs for an entire album of her own. So that One Long Blink album is still absolutely incredible. A lot of people don't really know about it, and none of that stuff is even on YouTube. Um, but she finally realizes now that it's just a great record. You know, she was just a little too young to appreciate, you know, once she got it out of her system, she wanted to move on to so many other things. And she kept thinking of that as being sort of like her very young, immature self, what happens to be brilliant because there are all these amazing mm -hmm. songs. So, uh, you know, I have a bunch of copies. I, I can get one to you, but it's, it's just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And the late, great Mindy Jostin played on it. Mindy was the, the fiddle player and, uh, and uh, accordion player who played with me and Kate Taylor, you know, Jim Taylor's sister. Um, oh, okay. And wow. She would always perform with us. And she was also in, she was in the Hooters. And um, she okay, was the one, she's that, she's that woman that was always playing with John Mellencamp, you know? Okay. Where they did like uh, Wild uh, Nights. And all. That's her. That's Mindy Jostin. Oh, uh, okay. I knew I know exactly who you mean, okay. Yeah, so she was in our band for a little while, and then she was in the band with, with me and Kate Taylor, uh, but sadly she passed away, you know, she was very, very young. So, uh, but she was just, just the greatest, you know, really. So she, she sort of, she's even in the video that Lexi did for my song, Angry River. 
uh, where Mindy's, Mindy's there by the river playing the violin. And she was just an amazing musician and amazing person. And, you know, uh, you know, like Lexi just has uh, a, a wonderful uh, voice. You know, uh, you know, we can get into the Mona Lisa twins as oh, well. They're, they're, they're great. They are. Yeah, they, I think that their I think their harmonies deserve a Grammy. You know, really. What, and what they they're they're John's neighbors, or it sounds like they live no. nearby. And no, 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 they're okay. in they're in Europe. They're in Europe. All, all they all they okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was impressed with what that they you know just the whole uh, group of people that were, were brought in. But yeah, yeah, they did a terrific job. You know, they appear on numerous <clears throat> songs. <clears throat> yeah, their work on Four Eyes is just unbelievable. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're, they're twins, so they have pretty much the same voice, you know. Uh, and they're from originally from Austria, but they live now in uh, – they're more up near, like, Liverpool, England, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. But they're, they're <laughs> wonderful. They're it, great. It, and – then uh, Maria Moldor is. Yeah, Maria's on there. On there, and her her ex husband Jeff Moldor is on there too. Yeah, and you know Maria ha- had like about one of the biggest hits in the seventies yeah. with Midnight at the Oasis. <laughs> uh, sure. I yeah and. The, Real, it's, it's still uh, you know you can find it on uh, YouTube. It's on all those uh, you know compilations of you know greatest hits from the yeah you know, uh, you know late I was night at her house. CDs. Yeah, I was at her house in Woodstock when we listened to the first um, test pressing of that record, <clears throat> and I went there in the car with Amos Garrett, who was the brilliant guitar player on that mm-hmm. track. You know, it's the guitar oh, player oh, that makes even... that song great. You know, that's Amos Garrett. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was with Amos and we're in there. We went to Maria's house and we're all listening, you know, Artie Traum, this one, that one, David Nickturn, who was the guy who wrote the song. And we're just all listening to the first pressing of it, you know, and it was like really exciting. Because it was pretty obvious. It felt like this was going to be a hit. You know, we just we really believed it, and it it was. And, and I, um, a friend of mine has her new CD with the New Orleans uh, jazz band, and yeah, you know, my friend really loves it. That. it. Yeah, she's great. Um, Maria's great. She's just. Was only, and she goes all the way back, you know, with John, before any of them were famous, you know. And there's the Jim Queskin Jug Band, and there was also a, uh, the Even Dozen Jug Band, which was in New York, that also that Maria was in, you know. So they all had this thing going on, which all centered around Greenwich Village, and uh, 
you know, Washington Square Park and all these people getting together and playing. It was a folk music boom, you know, back then. I was a little too young for it. That's, you know, that's, they're all like about eight to 12 years older than me, all those people. But I came in in that scene and there I was rock and roll Arlen with his electric guitar, you know, and just tore it up. So, <laughs> you know. It, it, you were, you know, you yeah. it started the um, show off, you know, talk, talking a little bit about the um, spoonfuls uh, influence on you when you're, you know, thirteen, fourteen years old. Yeah, sure. Probably about. Uh, yeah, you know, when I was about the same age, uh, John wrote and performed the "Welcome Back Carter" theme song. Yeah, you know, so that you know, John's relevant more you know, to uh, you know, my uh, you know, time period, just you know, at the same age. But uh, well, about, that was the what, only. 10, that was the only. That was the only number one hit he had. And, of course, that was no longer The Spoonful. So we didn't do that on mm-hmm. this album. But we did do that at the Opry. We just mm-hmm. performed that at the Opry because they they requested it, you know. So all of a sudden we come up there and we got three backup singers. We got a whole band behind us. We got, you know, it's like you walk into the Opry, you're right away backed up in every regard. You know, it's like, and everybody knows your song. It's like, we do like one quick little rehearsal for five minutes and that's it. And you walk on stage and boom, you know, you're an instant <laughs> tourist attraction. <laughs> what is it about John's songwriting that makes, you know, do you believe in magic in 1965, <clears throat> yeah, like that time, 65 and about 11, 12 years later, yeah, I'm first mm. starting to hear uh, Welcome Back Carter and, you know, really enjoying, you know, that TV show and John's song. What is it about his writing skills that makes him timeless? Well, I think, um, of course, you know, any great music really is timeless. Uh, but I think he has this rare ability to just, just pull things out of the air, come up with great ideas. Sometimes, you know, he would only have like one night to write a song. Like that Welcome Back Cotter, that, that story with him is like, you know, they, they literally gave him just one night to, to come up with that song. And uh, I think he's just got a real flair for great, you know, great melodies Great chord changes. He always had a wonderful voice, you know, very smooth voice, very easy to listen to. And uh, he's tapped into that New York kind of old school, like we used to call it almost like the Tin Pan Alley style of writing, where it's like, you know, oh, I only have an hour to write this song. No problem. You know, let's go. Boom. So he, he works so hard at it. And I think he goes through a lot of different rough drafts of it and also the lyrics as well 
because he's also a great lyricist. The lyrics are, are very clever, some of them, like unbelievably clever and really funny, you know. Uh, I think he just has that, he's able to marry the lyrics and the song together so perfectly that it's really a work of art. When he's done with it, it's a work of art, you know. Um, and uh, I remember one time, one very telling thing, I was working on an album up in Woodstock uh, at a studio. I was doing, I'm working on my album, Toolin' Around, <clears throat> which is a pretty well-known album of mine. And Sebastian just happened to show up in the middle of something that I was doing there. And as usual, you know, my album, that had a lot, a lot of guitar soloing, a lot of long, you know, instrumental interludes. And he walks in and he looks at me, he goes, as usual, no structure at all. No structure. <laughs> and I told him that story years later. He's cracking up. Because with him, the minute he hears music, he's hearing structure. He's a songwriter. You know, first and foremost, he's mm-hmm. a writer. So he is very much concerned with the structure of a song. Whereas with a lot of my stuff that I was doing back then, it was like, all right, now we'll solo for four minutes. You know, I mean, like, that was my idea of structure, you know, and that's the last thing in the world that Sebastian would ever approve of on his own music. You know, I mean, you think of like a song like Summer in the City, okay, that record, that's not even three minutes, okay, and it seems to be like a lifetime that goes on, you know, so many changes and things and sound effects and and images and imagery you know in that song and i i would think that it would be like a six minute song you know the experience is that of a six minute song but it's like a, a two minute and 90 something no, two minute 50 second something or other which you just can't believe you know it's like the beatles the beatles were able to do the same thing hit you with something under three minutes and to you it was like a lifetime of music you know just incredible it's uh-huh. genius really you know, it's a kind of genius. It really is. And yeah, uh, I, I th- yeah, yeah it, it, and I hope with all the you know, authors we have listening and painters that that they <clears throat> learn from you know what you are saying about an artist like John who is so recognizable uh, right and hopefully you know there some of the listeners are getting some inspiration on you know realizing okay maybe just make a little bit of a change over here you know that would propel me more you know forward yeah, something that just well, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a family of, um, of visual artists. artists. You know, my uh-huh. dad was a famous, famous cartoonist. He's a, was a great painter. My brother is a famous painter, um, and I grew up amongst all that stuff too. But the one thing that my dad and my brother always said is like, that one of the hardest moments with a work of art is to know when it's done. Just to say, okay, I'm walking away from this, you know, because my dad used to sometimes he'd have a painting hanging in the living room and 15 years after he painted it, 
he'd say, you know, it needs this. And he would just do a little <laughs> something, and, and then that would finish it to him, you know. But he was living with it, you know. The, art, the idea of living with the art. It's like I'm doing this new album now, and I go home. The engineer sends me the tracks, and now I'm living with them. I'm listening, and I'm thinking, what, what can be done? What can be improved, you know? So, but at the same time, you don't want to don't want to overdo it. You don't want to overthink something. You know, there has to be a, an element of spontaneity to it. John is is a real tune smith. He can really write like if it was a nine to five job. You know, he'd be able to sit there with his guitar and just bang out great songs one after another. You know, because that's how he approaches it. Me, I'll have something laying around for eight years in my head or on the guitar, and uh, I'll just like it the way it is. I'll never put words to it. But then when I head to the recording session, oh, maybe I'll write words that day, you know, because I just get happy with it. I live with it Mm -hmm. instrumentally. I'm so happy with it as a piece of music, you know. So I'm the complete opposite of that. But if I'm given a a deadline, you know, boom, it's going to be written, you know. I just I just have to have that structure of somebody telling me you have to do this now, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, I just get lazy and I let the let the music lie around until one day it comes out on an album of mine or something, you know. I mean, this is my the album with John is my seventeenth solo album now, and now I'm doing my eighteenth and my soul album that I'm going to be doing, uh, you know, in uh, April, which I have to keep as a secret right now. But that's going to be a real all-star soul album. That's going to be uh, number 19 for me. So, you know, before you know it, they all start to pile up. um, With the uh, soul album, (laughs) is that going to be a little bit like uh, Summit and Telemasters? Uh, A little bit of... Mm, not so much about it being all these guest artists, but it's going to be uh, an album that's going to be me with another guy featured, somebody who I played with for many years, who was like a major, major rhythm and blues and soul musician. And then we're going to have a couple of guests on the album. But what we're doing is we're doing a lot of a lot of classic material. Um, you know, and reworking some of it and having a couple of different vocalists on the album, of which I am one as well. It'll probably be about three different singers on the album. But we're talking about quintessential, the great players, you know, from the horns mm-hmm. to the rhythm section to everything. It's all going to be just unbelievable, unbelievable. And so uh, yeah. I'm really excited about it. And that, again, is something that I've been talking with my co-artist on, I've been talking about it for probably about four years at this point. So uh, it's a good time to uh, to get it done. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Oh, that's going to be a big one. That's going to be big, very, very big. And plus, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just really, I'm grabbing material from all over the place. Like some songs I've not even known as really soul songs, you know but we're going to do them sort of soul and R&B style. So, but it's one of those albums. I'm just going to let it be very organic. Let the musicians collectively create the sound, you know, 
just like all the great soul sections like Muscle Shoals and all and the Memphis guys, you know, uh, Steve Cropper and those guys, you know, let the musicians kind of create it in the studio and come up with something fresh. That's going to be exciting. You know, and I miss those days. I miss those days of just going to the studio with a bunch of people and just coming up with something. And that was one of the great things about working with Paul Simon in the studio, that he really understood just getting everybody together and let them start playing, you know. And then when it was really right, boom, let's take it. Let's record now, you know, while, while it's fresh kind of thing. And I like that. I like how Paul worked in the studio like that. It was good. You know, it's the way I like to work, too. With artist friends like, you know, John and, you know, Johnny Winter, um, you know, Yorma, you you did a um, video with... uh, but John Entwistle, mm-hmm. it, do is there uh, some kind of um, <clears throat> unifying theme from you know Woodstock that brought helped to coalesce all these people's uh, careers? Is uh, it, did, I don't know if it had to do with Woodstock per se. I mean, I think Woodstock was a time and place that uh, was kind of like a a high point during that era. You know, when a lot of people were creating a lot of music, but there still mm-hmm. wasn't things were still fairly unorganized then, you know, and and nobody was really making any real money yet, you know, from it all. But it was just happening. It was just like exploding. But you know, the mus- the musicians that I've played with all the top players that we've have been with and the stars and the this and that. The one thing that always seems like you're always on the same level when there's this clear understanding that <clears throat> we're going for the same thing. You know, we're going for the essence of what this song is or what this record is. Not that we're trying to uh, become stars or we're trying to make a lot of money or we're trying to stay on top, even though we're, our careers are dying, whatever it might, whatever the, the motive might be, there's just a certain moment. I can remember that with like with Simon and Garfunkel or with any of these people. That all of a sudden you look at in each other's eyes and you realize we're, we're on that same plane. We don't have to even talk about it. We just understand it. You know, we're connected by the music and um, you know, uh, it's just it's just a fascinating thing, you know, how that all works. And, um, you know, before you know it, once you're on that wavelength with each other, everything becomes so much easier, you know, so much easier. It just flows, you know. And when I look back on my career now and I think about the people where that really wasn't the case, you could see why things weren't, weren't that good with them. Why, why there was kind of a, a an emptiness or a, a fault there somewhere where, where the connection wasn't fully made, you know, or they weren't yet mature enough to understand that, you know. Um, 
And I've seen that with a lot of a lot of people, you know, a lot of different artists. Um, <clears throat> but that's the beauty of it, you know. Uh, there was a time back then when I was doing so many, you know, the early '70s and through the whole '70s, I was playing. It was the the singer songwriter era, you know. So I got to right. play. It was it was one singer songwriter after another. Um, it seemed like almost on a daily basis that I was working with. And, uh, you know, they were looking for you to do something with their music that would bring it even more to life, you know. Um, so I, I used to relish that because I'd come in and right away play for the song, you know, play for that. And, and while I'm doing that, of course, I was also learning, you know. That's a tremendous period of learning for me as well. So, you know, uh, when that songwriter... Uh, understands that you're going for that and you're even making their stuff better, then you really have a collaboration, you know. So that's the beautiful thing. The collaboration part of it for me is like the best. I don't want to be the lonely guy at the top directing this, that, and the other thing. It's the collaboration that matters. It's that interchange, you know. That's where the real growth happens, I think. Okay, I, I'm sure that's helping people in the audience. That's a very important point to make. So, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. With um, song, one of the songs on the Spoonful Songbook uh, CD is Nashville Cats. I, Mm-hmm. I really enjoy that song. So it, yeah. it yeah, it's a good a, a example. Yeah, we did of, you know, this we did that at the, at the Opry too. Yeah, we did that mm-hmm. at the Opry as well. And I, you know, I, that's me singing that on the album. Mm-hmm. That's not John. That's it, me. Right on the album. Yeah. It, it was that John's song or it, it's John's song. Yes. Okay, and yeah, you know, that that's about you know, just you know the, the trying trying to you know make it in the music industry. It, it, it has a good it's, song. It's bigger. Than, I mean, it's more than that. It's just about that Nashville had all these cats. Gene. Nashville had all these great pickers, you know, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the way he describes it, it's just so perfect, you know. The 1,652 guitar pickers in Nashville, and anyone that unpacks his case will, you know, play twice as better than I will, you know, that they're all just so darn good. And that was, what, you know, written in the 60s. But he and Zally, after a gig that they did in Nashville, uh, in front of, like, thousands of people, then they went back to this bar and they heard this kid just playing and playing and playing his heart out. And, uh, you know, John thinks that it was uh, Danny Gatton. But it could have been, but I don't think it – I don't know. I don't, it's hard to say. John thinks that it was Danny Gatton way back then because Danny was maybe a kid, but he was already playing great. But um, the uh, what it was was that they said, look, this guy's twice as better than us that will ever be, and he's just playing in this little bar at the Holiday Inn, you know, and um, 
And who are we to think there were such big shots, you know, with all, with all our hit records and everything. So that was a, that was the essence of how he came up with Nashville Cats, you know. I I enjoy that one. And it, what, what was the uh, idea behind um, doing, you know, just say, uh, do you believe in magic as a uh, – instrumental and you know, your guitar is uh, it's sounding almost like a voice well yeah some of that was a little uh dif- difficult for me because <clears throat> when i when john first heard that i was doing this album i was doing just instrumental spoonful songs i wasn't going to try to sing them you know and then he decided he wanted to be in on it be in on the album because I did a Stones tribute. The Stones weren't on that. I did a Bob Dylan one. He wasn't on that. I did a, you know, a Simon and Garfunkel. They're not on it either. Art Garfunkel wrote the liner notes, which was nice. But, you know, those are all just all my albums. John wanted to be a part of this. <clears throat> and John, uh, we tried a whole bunch of tunes uh, and, you know, to see if we could sing them, see if we could do them instrumentally. I think he wanted to keep the balance so that I was still doing some of what I originally wanted with the album, which was to do the songs instrumentally. So, but and some of them were um, originally going to be sung, but then we decided to just do them as instrumentals, like Daydream, Do You Believe in Magic, uh, A Younger Girl, like that. And, you know, I said, fine, it's great, you know. Um, We'll do that. But some of them ended up in keys that I don't normally play in. I wouldn't necessarily have done those in those keys because they were designed for the the voice, you know. But they worked out. They worked out okay, you know. I would have done it totally differently. If if the album had been all instrumental, it would have been a whole different uh, vibe, you know. But I think this worked out really well because John – First and foremost, he's a musician, so he got a chance to play his songs all over again with me. So it was kind of like a fresh take on it for him, you know. And he just loves how much I love the music. So that kind of like sparked him again that, you know, Arlen is really, really loving this stuff as if it's fresh and new. And uh, because for me, it was all about my youth. It was about what I used to play. Uh, there's that little story right. in the album of like my cousin. I had a cousin who had a band that would play spoonful mm-hmm. stuff. He was about seven mm-hmm. years older than me, but I went to his house and I had to critique the whole band. I had to tell them all what to play. You know, I was 13. I was telling all <laughs> these 20 year olds what to play. You know, yeah, for the liner notes. Yeah, my cousin's band. I didn't realize what they were called at the time, but their, their name was The Plague. They were called The Plague. Because so, I was telling that story to my brother the other day, and he said, oh, yeah, The Plague. I'm like, that's right. I forgot that their name was The Plague. But, um, you know, it was <laughs> these guys that they even were trying to, like, look like the Spoonful, you know. So it was pretty interesting. Those were great yeah. times, very yeah. innocent times. Yeah, the, the uh, 
stories we could tell oh great song, song. It, it, it just yeah, uh, uh, that has it, it, it's a great vignette of you know, boy and a girl, you know, husband and wife, you know, uh, and they're talk, you know, reminiscing. It's yeah, it could be anyone. Or, it could really be anyone reminiscing. Right to sit on to sit on a uh, on a bed in a motel room and telling stories. You know, I mean, like it's that. It's it's a song of almost like, of like the road. It's a song about mm-hmm. being on the road. And yet, what is it really except a story to tell? You know, and then when John and I get together, that's all we do is we tell stories. It's incredible. I mean, you can't stop us, you know. So uh, we both have this incredible wealth of uh, things we've been through and experiences in the music business and and uh, similar upbringings, you know. And we just have all this great stuff that we can relate to each other on so uh it's wonderful when we get it, together and we go out for a dinner or something somebody should have a tape recorder going because what gets <laughs> said is just unbelievable it's unbelievable you know really is and his stuff is priceless you know and it's just amazing it's amazing it, you know did, did, uh did, did he talk about uh playing with the doors yeah, a little bit. He mentioned that uh, about doing the harmonica, I guess, on uh, a couple of those. There's two, you know, I was never a big Doors fan, but I know John was doing, uh, I think he was working with um, Paul, Paul Rothschild, you know, the the, the producer back Pro- then, Pro- mm-hmm. and, and who wow. produced the Doors. And so John, you know, he would call it, John did all kinds of sessions where he was playing almost playing anonymous, anonymously on things back then, you know. Because that's how it would happen back then. You wouldn't necessarily get credit on the album. Did, you know. Okay. Well, what, are, are you working on your autobiography to get these stories? I wish I could. I, I wish yeah. I could say that. I mean, uh, well, there's somebody else I have who's kind of like helping put it together, you know. But... uh We'll see how how far it's gone. <laughs> it's been a couple of years we've been talking about it already, and I have I have unbelievable stories. The rarest thing about me being a musician is I actually I actually retained all these stories. You know, I remember everything, so um, I just know exactly what people told me all the time, and and all the happenings in the studios and happenings on the road, and just the general richness of life you know, uh, that I've just always retained because it's all, it's all about it being something that will be retold someday, you know? So that to me is very important, you know, but, uh, you know, it's like when I think about hot lake creating hot lakes and I look at those videos and 30 years of shooting, over 240 videos with all diff- 180 different artists and watching that whole thing, you know, pass before my eyes, what it meant, what it took to do all that, you know, to get James Burton in the studio, to get Buddy Guy there, to get Junior Wells there, to get Tal Farlow, you know, whoever it might have been. All these artists who, who in the beginning 
never wanted to do anything like that because I made it cool for people to teach on tape. Nobody ever did it before. So, you know, uh, I'm the first one who ever did the videos, the instructional videos. So, And I understood that it was all about being self-taught and helping others teach themselves. You know, not about like, okay, class, listen very carefully, and you have to do exactly this. No, it's about being inspired. You know, you're listening to to some of the top musicians in the world, many of us who don't even know how to explain what it is we do. But the video, the, you know, right? Nobody even, but the video is doing the explaining for you. You're seeing it, right. you know, so and hearing it. So, you know, people used to tell me, they say, oh, we don't even care if we learn anything from the videos. We just watch them and we get inspired, you know. So those people really got the, got the, you know, got got what it was all about. So, you know, oh, and, so we and have millions of students all over the world, millions. Right, and, and uh, you know, our our buddy Greg Martin uh, just played yeah. with uh, uh, Buddy Guy over the yep. weekend, and he, he's still. Uh, yeah, yeah, just uh, posting uh, more and more photos that he's people are sending to him. I, it's he, he just uh, he's talking about it on his show last night as well. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah, another one of your uh, bandmates, like, uh, Brad Paisley. Yeah. Brad yeah, Paisley. He's doing yeah. a project. Yeah, he's doing it. Something scrolled by uh, yesterday, I think, uh, and I saw where he he was doing some project with Elvin Bishop and Garrison Keillor at uh, uh, the Red Rocks Amphitheater. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah. Nice. Well, uh, that's the thing. It's like, again, what I'm saying is like the, it's in the air, like collaborations over the last, I don't know what, 10, 15 years, it's just gotten more and more prevalent, you know, to collaborate with people and uh, embrace the music of others as you're doing music, you know, whether it be vocalists or whether it be instrumentalists, you know, and I'm one of the guys that really made it a cool thing to do, especially with Hot Licks, you know, so, and then tooling around that album and, you know, uh, just going on and on with it. So. Even when I'm doing my own record, I'm still collaborating with somebody in creating it, you know. So uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience, and it's so enriching. I mean, I just feel a hundred times better when I can be at the studio and be making some good positive music, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, Steve Vai is about ready to start his tour, so, uh, you know, there's... You know, sample That's of good. you know people yeah. can you know, watch uh, Crossroads and then go to your website and hear some of the uh, outtakes that you and Ry Cooter did, and as well as a whole bunch of other uh, people on the studio joined in with you know choruses. Uh, well, yeah, those, it was great. I'm glad I found that cassette in my basement because that was all the stuff that 
uh, you know, things that we never ended up having in the movie because we were still just working things out, you know. It's like the, the ending before Steve Vai came in, months before Steve Vai came in, you know. It, was, it started out with the ending was going to be me and Ry Cooter, and Ry Cooter was going to be playing the, uh, the, 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 the other guitar player, you know. I was going to play Ralph Macchio's parts, and Ry was going to be Ry. And he was going to be the Jack Butler character, you know. But then when the producers and all that, they decided to change that, I think that got Rye a little bit pissed off or whatever, or a little bit upset. So, well, you, what are you going to do? You, yeah, well, all the people you collaborate with, uh, you know, fortunately getting back on the road and, they yeah, have things sure. going on. So, but uh, you know, Ar- Arlen, you, you know, you had uh, uh, you know, studio stuff going on today, and uh, another interview, and yeah, you, you didn't want to uh, make this a, a full two-hour uh, show. <laughs> you know, if you wanted to. Uh, just wrap now. We could do that, and uh, you, you're welcome to come back any time to talk about when you have sure, a new the next CD. project. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, John and know I also. Yeah, I mean, John, John and I are also talking about doing a uh, a follow up already, and I think he wants to release that the song that my daughter did. You know. Uh, uh, I forgot the name of it already. Um, you know, you mentioned it before, the song that Lexi did on the uh, on the album. Didn't oh. want to have to do it. Didn't want to have to do it. Yeah. Uh, that They want to release that as a single. So all of a sudden, Lexi will have a single out that's from this album, you know? So you never know. You never know how BMG is going to be thinking of this record but uh, I know that it was a it was a long process, but it was a very very positive process doing doing all this, you know. And um, just so happy that it it came out as good as it did. I enjoy it, and it's you know, something to be very proud of. I I. Thank you, thank you. I, I, you know, it's 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 an unusual project, but it came out great. It's not the usual kind of thing I did, and that's what I'm happy about. It was something refreshing, something different, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that that that's one of the creative processes that Barbara and I have is, you know, we kind of like those throwing those curveballs at the listeners, and you know, it's. They want to see how we handle it, and sure. hopefully, uh, by the end of the interview, you know, they have a new take on whatever that subject is. But you know, it's, <clears throat> I, I, I like going to just sticking your neck out and trying something different, and you did that, sure. and you and John made well, it work. Yeah, and the great thing about with John is that. See, he loved the albums I did, like he loved that Stones album I did. 
And mm-hmm. that's a good one too. Which I didn't, which I didn't do with any of the stones. You know, I mean, it was just me. And the fact that he felt strong enough about my treatment of their music to have me do his music, but at the same time with him on the album, that created a whole lot more. I were, I don't want to use the, pre, the word pressure on me, but it made it made the collaboration, you know, like it it had a lot of meaning because they're his songs, you know. So I'm thinking. It was like me doing an album with Burt Bacharach with, you know, about Burt Bacharach, you know. Well, he's not going to just sit quietly in the corner and just let it all go down. He's going to have a lot of input, you know. So right. that's the thing with John, too. And that, But there's no problem there because I have the utmost respect for John. That's why I did the album in the first place, because I just love him and love the music, you know. So it was a perfect, perfect uh, combination in that regard. Yeah, you are bringing uh, a lot more of the spoonful songs to a new generation. Exactly, yeah. But I tell you, those songs never have gone away. It's like there was one night a couple of months ago I turned on the TV and I heard four of his songs on four different commercials within the same half hour. You know? (laughs) And I couldn't believe it. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. You oh. know, Chili's is opening up again. Oh, welcome back. You know, and uh, <laughs> right. I think for a long time, Do You Believe in Magic, I think, was the McDonald's theme. You know, I mean, this is like some serious royalties, you know. <laughs> but that's just great because his songs are out there. They're timeless as hits and they're timeless even for commercials. You know, they just mm-hmm. have such a direct message. It's a message that everybody can relate to. And that's why these companies, oh, of course, do you believe in magic? What a perfect song for us, you know, and they they, they sell themselves those songs, you know. They really do. Yeah. Well, I'm, so, yeah. I enjoy my copy. So, uh, you know, people can get get it on Amazon where, where else Oh, everywhere. Uh, can, you know. Okay. Any place that carries music these days, you know. And, uh, of course, there are also vinyls as well. Uh, I had a bunch of vinyls, and, boy, you know, everybody wanted them when I was doing uh, gigs. Those, those sold out sold out really fast, you know. So uh, and it's so great to hold the album cover, that big album cover, and look at big pictures, you know. Um it is it's great, but you working with John. It's a pleasure, and I hope he can do a, a follow up to it. You know, he wanted to, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. But it's an honor to work with him, and I grew up loving his music. And it's just, I have to pinch myself when I know that I'm actually with him making this album. You know, it's pretty incredible. So, okay. Well, Ar- Arlen, do you want to? Uh... Close there, and we'll yeah. resume sometime soon. I know you're uh, you've had a long day, so um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. This was great. I really appreciate it. Uh, again, best to Barbara and uh, the show yep. as, as usual. You're doing a great job. Uh, you know, let me know Thanks. when it's archived so we can have folks listen I, to I, it, and you know, I, and we'll, I, we'll I, just keep in touch. 
we'll do that. I'll, I'll get it to you tomorrow afternoon. And th- thanks again, Arlen. And uh, people can go to ArlenRoth.com uh, to find out more about Arlen. And uh, we will – I think Barbara has a show tomorrow. And, you know, we'll see everyone tomorrow. Thanks again, Arlen. Thanks, Barbara, for producing it. And uh, we'll see everyone tomorrow night.